0: Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com.
1: Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day. Uh, I think about... I think about Mother's Day and all that goes into being a mother and I'm glad that I'm a father. (laughs) Uh, I'll just leave it that way. Uh, Moms are special. Moms sure are special. Um, And my Omi is here today and uh, she has told me on several occasions that um, she is really glad that she's not bringing life into this world right now. Um, The life the life that (coughs) We live in this time. It sure is puzzling and it's divisive and it's troubling. And um, But this is the time that we've been given. This is the time that the Lord has placed us here. And so I feel like we have to be aware um, of the time that we live in. Um, we're told that we're new creations and that we've received the Spirit of God Himself. Um, and I believe that if that indeed is the case, where we are... Um, one with God and have His very spirit within us, that that should manifest itself in such a way that makes us be different, uh, that makes us have a worldview that might not match the worldview of those around us. Um, we might have a value system that uh, seems odd and puzzling um, to the people of this world. but on this mother 's day um, i'm just i 'm fascinated by an article that I read that basically said they they polled all of these people and they said parents were surprised to find that their children had a starkly different worldview than they themselves had and they did not realize it. Um, And some of those polls were polls of kids that hadn't even gone to college yet. And the statistics, once they go to college, becomes even more extreme. Because if we're just being honest with ourselves, the state-funded university has already done away with God. Um, And when when you're teaching, um, young moldable minds with the first principle that God is done away with. But mom and dad believe in God, well if that mind goes the direction of the professor, that rift certainly can't separate. So I'm reminded this morning of how important it is to parent in this world and how important it is to uh, raise your children um, in the truth. And Paul himself, um, when he writes his second letter to the Corinthians, um, says some words that might come across a little strange but in the context i'll kind of tell you where this is not going uh... paul is basically going to say that you need to be separate from the unbeliever Um, that does not mean you're not allowed to have any unbelieving friends that doesn't mean that if you're already married to an unbeliever that you're supposed to split that union Um, jesus himself found himself in the company of sinners all the time like to the point where the religious elite were scratching their head like what is he doing with these people He's not saying remove and isolate yourself from them, but rather witness to them. But this word here, bound together, um, the kind of union that you have with the Holy Spirit and the Father, that kind of union, what he's saying here is kind of impossible with someone that doesn't have that same anchoring truth of God. And so this is what Paul says to the believers in Corinth. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? And this is basically another word for the devil or the personification of evil itself. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And so Paul is clearly stating that we need to be different um, than the world around us. This world that is... Um, has basically done away with God or doesn't know God or is living in such a way where God's irrelevant to their worldview. Um, Our first principles, it should be impossible for those first principles to align with that kind of a worldview. And he's saying, basically laying it out, that these, if you're, um, see, I'm a geometry guy, so i got to get to the geometry. Venn diagrams, bubble over here, bubble over here. Sometimes you got that gap in the middle where an ace can also be a heart. But what this is saying is that uh, an ace can't be a king, right? The believer and the unbeliever have this void um, where they they can't share a common worldview or a common value system that differs um, at the core and based on truth. But uh, to understand how different we actually are, we must first understand the culture in which we live. Um, I'm going to talk about postmodernism today. And I guess we've been doing... Questions, so I'll, I'll do this. I don't have any jolly answers to throw you if you get it right, like I do in my classroom. But does anybody have a good working definition of what postmodernism is? We hear it a lot. You might hear it on the news. You might have talked about it in college. But postmodernism, we maybe know what it does. We know that it's right now. But defining it can be a little tricky. Um, in order to get there, in order to come up with a definition, we kind of got to look at uh, what the modern period actually brought about. And so here are some of the uh, philosophical views that led us to where we are today. We've got rationalism. Um, A mathematician, Rene Descartes, he was one of the guys that uh, plugged into this uh, worldview. And it basically says that we can know and we can trust and we believe things that we can come about by reason alone. That these rules of logic must be followed in order to come up with some theorem or axiom um, that we can hold dear and define as truth so if it's not reasonable if it's not rational it is to be done away with um, and if you love america uh... you can thank the enlightenment where um, the great thinkers of the eighteenth century basically discovered the power of the individual and god-given rights and our modern ideals of freedom and democracy And uh, individual rights and individual property come from thinkers um, from the Enlightenment period. And then we move into empiricism, which kind of takes this rational thought and it backs it up with the scientific method that now things that seem reasonable must also be tested out, um, must be rot through the system and must have some hypothesis that's checked by actual evidence and so we get this idea of logical positivism that uh, we can be positive about thoughts that we've felt were rational and have been tested out and then comes existentialism which kind of moves away from the cerebral Uh, this was a group of thinkers that basically said okay we get you and all your science stuff but I have feelings and I have a will and I have desires and all of this seems to be immaterial. These aren't things that you can put in a petri dish and try to figure out. So how does that come into play? How does me as an individual um, who might have these inklings or desires, like how do you back that up with any kind of science? So it started to test the boundaries of what had come prior. And then we move into postmodernism. And so when I was reading, um, they basically decided that, you know, postmodernism is what comes after the modern. Well, yeah, no duh. That's what post means, right? <laughs> but modernism is this two hundred year long or so period that brings us to, you know, the middle of the nineteenth century or so, where we get to postmodernism, where postmodernism kind of does away with all of it. And it completely scraps truth. Um, truth is not some sort of thing that you can hold on to. Truth is completely subjective and relative to who's doing the talking and who's doing the listening. You've got no meaning. Words are stripped of their meaning. Um, We'll talk about Jacques Derrida, who basically said that um, the language is just infinitely unstable, and to build up things using words is a futile point because words themselves can be deconstructed. And this leads to no certainty. We can't be certain about anything. Postmodernism is anchored on the belief that truth claims are acts of oppression, that words are subject to relative meanings, and that subversion to social norms, and the transgressing of boundaries are the end game. Um, but we as Christians might feel like we're not prone to the tendencies of postmodernism. But I recall Dan, Dan my brother, is here. He might remember the story um, at a church where we were once. Uh, they were in a period where the youth program was kind of in flux, and we had someone come in in the interim. And I remember sitting down and reading through Scripture, and she. She was kind of telling us, like, what really is important is what you get out of this. Like, what does this scripture speak to you? What what does it mean to you? And that might differ from somebody else, but what leaps off the page at you is important. And in my teenage tact, I remember looking at my brother across the room and saying, don't believe that. That's not true. (laughs) Uh, Which led to some discussion. Um, But even at that time, just as a kid in high school, even hearing those words struck me as obviously false. Um, It doesn't much matter what something means to you. It matters what it means. And if it's a truth statement, uh, you need to figure out where you align with the truth, but not try to get the truth to align with where you are. And um, we might think, you know, that this is just a modern thing, but as uh, Walt alluded to last week, um, the true postmodern ideal came in the garden. Um, And I'm going to read from you out of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil himself introduced true postmodernism with his attack on the authority of God. Um, We're going to find today that uh, authority is stripped from the author or the creator of the words. The devil questioned, is that really what God said? Is that really the meaning behind what he was talking about? And then we'll find that the end game of postmodernism is to transgress boundaries. The devil was tempting evil. Well, if you just break that little rule, you'll actually find that grass is greener on the other side. You'll actually gain something out of it. Um, dark, dark places that you can go when you strip away authority um, from words and you think that there is benefit in transgressing. But let's start looking at uh, some of the main thinkers of postmodernism. We've got Jacques Derrida who was from France, and he's kind of the leader of the postmodern thought, and he was the father of deconstruction. And the purpose of deconstruction is to expose that the object of language and that which any text is founded upon is irreducibly complex, unstable, or impossible. So that was a lot of words, but it basically says anything that you use to build up Um, any thought or any rule or any sort of establishment that you create founded on text is impossible and irreducibly complex and it needs to be deconstructed. He came from France to America and he came to the universities and he deconstructed the U.S. Constitution to a round of applause from all the classes that he went to because he showed that all of these words could be stripped of their meaning and what is this document anyway if we can break it down and strip it of its truth. But Um, Here's what one critic says of Jacques Derrida. Roger Scruton writes this. He's difficult to summarize because it's nonsense. He argues that the meaning of a sign, you can kind of replace the word sign with a word, um, the meaning of a sign is never revealed in the sign but, but deferred indefinitely. And that a sign only means something by virtue of its difference from something else. So for Derrida, there is no such thing as meaning it always eludes us and therefore anything goes Uh, so his argument was that the meaning of a word would be deferred to the past like where did that meaning come from well that could keep getting pointed further and further to the past to the point where the word doesn't mean anything and so anything goes when it comes to morality or when it comes to interpretation um, when it comes to truth and he was a thinker that agreed with this mindset along with many others um, and I feel like if you start to understand uh, what postmodernism is actually getting at, you might um, find it remarkably uh, in common with what we see on the news or at college universities um, today. The heart of postmodernism is that truth is socially constructed. Okay, so truth is socially constructed. That means that any kind of truth claim was built out of the society um, from whence it came, that any truth claim is an act of oppression. Any truth claim is an act of oppression. Um, This past week, we found out that uh, the Boy Scouts are no longer going to be called the Boy Scouts um, because simply to delineate the differences between boys and girls is an act of oppression. Uh, Recently, there was a school system in North Carolina that told its elementary school teachers, you're not allowed to greet your children as boys and girls because that would be oppressing them with um, the social construct of gender. Um, This past week, um, I don't know if you were paying attention to the news, but at Cornell there was quite an incident. Um, Earlier in the week a professor had told a student that uh, her shorts were a bit too short and inappropriate for the environment, um, for the respectful nature of the the learning environment um, in which they found themselves. Well, she had a plan. On Saturday, she defended her um, senior thesis by stripping down to her underwear. And then in the middle of her speech saying, all right, everybody strip. And it said, 28 of the 44 peers of hers started removing their clothes. You can't make this up. Like, I, I was going through my news feed. I was going through my news feed. And I was like, well, surely this is from one of those satire websites, but no? It it wasn't. A senior thesis at Cornell University um, in order to protest the patriarchy um, was done without much clothing on. Yeah.
2: 450,000.
1: Wow. $14 million. Wow. You guys are more educated on that than I am. But all I all I do remember is that there was scientific evidence that boys learn better around boys, and that for whatever reason it was there's there's more growth and there's more trackable like evidence of um, progression when they are in that uh, male environment. Um, what? Those are big numbers. All right. There's no great segue into what I'm about to say next, so we'll just click the next button. <laughs> Richard Rorty, um, he was another postmodern philosopher, and this is a quote of his own: "Truth is made, rather than found." Um, the reason that I'm I'm quoting people is because you might not believe me if I if I didn't. Like that's a real man who said that that sentence right there. Um, if you're a Christian, we understand we understand that truth truth is absolute. That truth. Truth stems from God and that truth is something that must be revealed. I mean, just think about all the words of Paul um, that he had this revelation of Christ and this gospel that was given to him, this truth that he is spreading around the world was a revelation from God himself. And that we don't make truth, but rather we align with it when it is revealed to us. So Richard Rorty, truth is made rather than found. And then Michel Foucault, um, we'll talk about him a little bit later. But he said this, kind of echoing um, I'm sure the sentiments of um, that young student at Cornell, that all claims to truth are constructed in order to serve those in power. All claims to truth are constructed in order to serve those in power. Um, if you watch the news, if you see the placards out in the streets, if you uh, see the protests on college campuses, you can start to see where all of that vocabulary might be coming from. Um, In our our modern age, it seems like if you're not trying to disrupt or dismantle some form of authority somewhere, um, you're not quite doing it right. But Michel Foucault said that it wasn't just people that had power that were able to um, administer their reign over others, but it's that truth itself is simply derived from people who have power and want to preserve it can you imagine with me for a moment a very special document that might come under attack because of thinking like this well there are two that come to my mind the Bible would be one and our US Constitution would be another um, if the Constitution itself was simply claims to truth to preserve um, people in power and what they had well if you're Jacques Derrida you try to deconstruct that and this is what I found was interesting uh, this came from a conversation with my wife in the car so she is I was about to say to blame for this she's not to blame for this she's responsible for this um but she's just started thinking and started speaking out loud and I said ooh, ooh 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 I just kept ooh oohing um but she was talking about how when she teaches in her English classes she says before we dive into any poem before we dive into any piece of literature or any historical literary period we must understand the context of the author um, we got to understand why a book is written. Um, what was the surrounding um, worldview and the culture behind the words of the book? And the word "author" itself is defined as a writer of a book, an article, or a report. And it also has like a deeper meaning of um, one who is an originator or creator of something, especially a plan or an idea. So to author, in other words, is to create to have the authority over the origin of something. And you might have heard me just say this word, which has the same root um, as the word author. Uh, The authority that someone might possess is the power to influence others, especially because of one's commanding manner or one's recognized knowledge about something. And so um, what these postmodern thinkers tried to do was basically um, strip away meaning from words, to basically claim that the author was dead. That uh, if someone had written something or someone had said something, that uh, their intention behind it, the uh, the origins of their creation, were irrelevant. It was the interpretation of the reader that was the most important thing. Um, and so a text that might have been written could be um, interpreted in many different ways, and what the author's intention was was completely irrelevant. And... Um, I came across this, This uh, I don't like to start Facebook storms, and I really didn't think I was going to, but uh, earlier this year, I had a student fling the door open to my classroom and just come in and yell, it is so bleepity bleeping bleeping hot in here. And I was like, what in the world? She didn't say bleepity bleepity bleeping. bleeping. She said uh, other things. And I posted on Facebook that... Uh, What is going on that these words are just so commonplace and that uh, reverence for surroundings are completely gone? And um, here's what someone quoted back to me. Words are words. Music is music. Some intervals or instruments may be offensive to some. Some words may be offensive to some. But again, the problem isn't the word. It's the person that gets all worked up over hearing it. So I was told that I was the one in the wrong because I got worked up that my student flung the door open and started screaming those words. Yeah, I know. I I simply responded. um, Actually, my mother-in-law responded before I could. I was tutoring or something. And I got back and I looked at my phone. I was like, oh, she stole everything I was about to say. But she said, so uh, a racial slur or some sort of derogatory thing towards a people group, is that... If you get worked up over that, is that your fault or is that because there's some sort of intrinsic harm in the word itself? I didn't get any response because (laughs) they were backed into a corner. Another person wrote this on my wall, while I sense your frustration, the world is changing rapidly and the rules for why a word is considered a vulgar word are arbitrary. There are even people who subscribe to the theory that what is now considered vulgar language may one day day be widely accepted as words like cool, awesome, or amazing. We're almost there. (laughs) I don't want to be there. Right? But you can see they might not claim to be postmodern. They might not think that they're towing the postmodern line, but that thought has gotten there. Where words are stripped of their meaning and they can be commonplace, and if the F word is just as... um, synonymous with the word cool, uh, then what's the big harm? You're the person that's getting worked up because you're trying to put meaning where there is none. That's dangerous. But let's see what comes out of this belief in no truth or this belief that um, words don't have meaning. All authorities must be overturned. Words are stripped of their meaning. Everything is deconstructive. And this leads to relativism, where truth or words are... um, given their meaning by who is doing the listening, who's doing the reading, what uh, culture do you come from, what context are you hearing it in. um, And as Walt talked about last week, if it's uh, read through the lens of Oprah, however it applies to your truth, right? Well, here we go. Let's talk about where this leads us. Do we we have any people that have gone to law school? Do we have any lawyers? (laughs) Attaboy. because I would gladly hand over the mic. I'm by no means a lawyer, but in my research, um, we came across this idea of critical theory, and this is this is quoted straight off of the Cornell Law website. Okay, so two allusions to Cornell today. <laughs> they they just kept popping up on the internet. Did you go to Cornell? Oh, Okay. <laughs> But you always kept your clothes on, right? All right. All right. All right. Oh, wow. Well. well, we could, I mean, where do you want it to be? Words don't mean anything. We can change this right up. Uh, it's all relative. I'm sure this is plastered all over many, many websites. But here's critical theory. Oh, man, that's funny. Uh, we can be friends. It's okay. All right, critical theory. Here's what it says straight off the website. Critical legal studies is a theory that challenges and overturns accepted norms and standards in legal theory and practice. Proponents of this theory believe that logic and structure attributed to the law grow out of the power relationships of the society. Does that sound familiar? There's going to be a lot of deja vu today. A lot of the same sort of arguments. The law exists to support the interests of the party or class that forms it and is merely a collection of beliefs and prejudices that legitimize the injustices of society again I'm not making this up that was a copy and paste Um, and I I don't know about you but I can get lost on YouTube where the guys go out with the microphones to all these rallies and they ask these college kids like well why are you here today and they start jibber-jabber and jibber-jabber and then there's one little question that comes back to kind of challenge that and then they say oh I don't really know much about that you know I'm just here so, uh, so um, but can you see where today a lot of that thought is coming from? If you're, if you're paying $30,000 a year to go listen to the professors, and the professors are telling you that the law... It's $60,000 a year. So, oh, <laughs> woo, Man, that's expensive. Oh, oh man. But if, if what you're being told, I mean, if you're paying for it, it's got to be right, doesn't it? If what you're being told is that uh, the law simply exists to support the interests of the party or the class that formed it, um, then what's your duty if you're a good person? Change that law, right? And um, critical theory, when it's applied, um, can lead to some pretty dangerous things. Now, I'm by no means an expert, so I'm going to defer you um, to an article if you want to read up more on this. But... uh, You might know that abortion isn't actually in the Constitution anywhere, right? That's not written down anyplace. But how did we get to abortion? Well, um, it was through the lens of this this critical theory um, and trying to find rights in the Constitution that actually aren't there. And so if you're familiar with the Constitution, the Ninth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment are basically there to say anything that's written in this law um, should not be used in such a way that will transgress the rights of an individual or a citizen of the country. That this law can't be used um, without due process to remove the rights of an individual. And what happened was there was this case, Griswold versus Connecticut, and it had to do with the use of contraception. And at the time in Connecticut, it was illegal to use contraception. Um, But it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they ruled um, in favor of um, the couple um, because there was the right to privacy that was found in what was called the penumbra of rights hidden in the 14th and 9th Amendments and um, Mark Levin uh, one of my one of my favorite authors he wrote authors he wrote um, an article on it and it's called Death by Privacy and I would I would suggest if you want to read up more on this um, in your free time just Google Death by Privacy by Mark Levin um, and he's got a very expansive and detailed um, response to all of this but this is how he responds he says don't be embarrassed if you don't know what emanations from penumbras are young lawyers across america had to pull out their dictionaries when reading griswold for the first time this was the case um, that i was talking about in connecticut a penumbra is an astronomical term describing the parcel shadow in an eclipse or the edge of a sunspot and it is another way to describe something unclear or uncertain. Emanation is a scientific term for gas made from radioactive decay. It also means an emission. So in other words, um, even though it wasn't written expressly in the law, there are these inklings or suggestions that are there and rights that can be found um, that aren't in the text. And what we've, we've found as we continue to move on and on and on um, into the future here, that uh, the critical legal theorists, their aim is to find rights that are not written down, is to go looking in the Constitution for rights that they can pull out of amendments or pull out of the text which actually aren't written there. Um, i suggest that you go read the article, but essentially what happened is because they opened that door um, to this right of privacy which isn't written, then um, the rights of the unborn baby are trumped by the mothers, um, choice to obtain an abortion and the mother is um, protected by these rights that were found in this penumbra. First time I'd heard that word too. Um, and what is it? What's the stat now? We're talking about big numbers. Every year, what do we do as a nation? Murder. Scary stuff. Alright, well, we've taken all that time to talk about truth and deconstructing and deconstruction and now we get to talk about no meaning Oh my! Um, Has anybody ever heard of the term meta narrative? That's a big one. Okay, so the meta narrative is basically the big story, the big explanation of how things came to be, where they're going, um, explanations of right and wrong. Um, You might find that the Bible and the gospel is one great big meta narrative. We have a creation made in the image of God. We have sin that separates God and man. We have a redeemer and now we have a sealed assurance in the Holy Spirit and something to look forward to. We have an explanation of what is about to come. That's a meta-narrative. One of the great challenges to the Christian meta-narrative was Marxism because Marxism is a big story. Um, Marxism says that uh, sin, what we would think of as sin is really oppression, one class over the other. that uh, it's the power structures that need to be overturned like this is how we got here but where we need to go is um, to break down all of those structures to overthrow the oppressors and the end game is the the final beautiful equality of outcome and the new um, communist man that was a challenge to the Christian worldview but postmodernism which came even after that says this I define postmodern as incredulity towards meta narratives. So in other words, there is no big story. Any big story gets dissected and broken down into little stories. And what happens with little stories? Well, then that, again, refers back to Oprah. It becomes your truth. It doesn't, it doesn't refer to truth. It's what your little story tells you um, is right or wrong. And um, I'm not also an art history major. Um, But this is one of Picasso's most famous paintings. He was a modern artist, Picasso was. Um, And what the modern artists were trying to do was to break some of the rules. Uh, They still had content and form and line, and they still had good color play, but they were definitely pushing the boundaries. But it was still telling a story. It was still art that was... um, being placed into the context of the meta-narrative, even if it was meant to challenge it and to subvert it. But this is, a, uh, this is a painting by Picasso called Guernica, and it's about an atrocity during the Spanish Civil War. It tells a story of a man with his arms outstretched as he faces a firing squad. And this was a story that was meant to subvert the Roman Catholic Church, um, to subvert the authority of religion, to subvert the authority of a state-sponsored um, church, it was still telling a story. Um, it was still trying to subvert. It still had an intention. It still had a purpose. But it was starting to break the rules of um, classical and traditional art. This is one of the most famous pieces of modern art. However, postmodern art does not tell a story. Um, I wanted to put some pictures up, but this is church. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of modern art uses um, different materials. Uh, there's a lot of art that's created from fecal matter, um, there's art that has a lot of human organs involved in it, um, but it's not meant to tell a story, it's meant to jar you, it's meant to subvert. Um, it's not meant to enter into any sort of narrative, it's just pieces that are thrown together. There's a French word called pastiche, where you basically take different elements and just kind of all slam it into one. And um, the same is kinda true with postmodern music there's no overarching theme there are just pieces and snippets of things that seem all out of place mixes of styles that all go together not to tell a story but simply to make you kinda sit back and to kinda transgress what you would interpret as what it should be um, what is traditional and when we um, take away the meta-narrative when we take away the big story of how things are and how things should be we get to a situation where there's no meaning in life. And here's Richard Rorty again. He said, there is nothing deep down inside us except what we have put there ourselves. And if that's not anti-Christian, I don't know what is. There's nothing deep down inside us except what we have put there ourselves. Just think about the hopelessness of that quote. But then also think about uh, someone who is without God and is easily swayed, would read in the last sentence, well what do I get to put there myself? That's where hedonism enters. That's where you get life that's simply driven by pleasure and self-seeking and what makes me feel good. Um, If facts don't matter, feelings are everything. Well what can I get out of this life if there's no big story, if I don't fit in, if I don't even know why I'm here? Well then the end game should be to just feel good, to try to take advantage of all the pleasure that I can find. When there's no meaning or no overarching story to our lives, there's a loss of purpose, which means life again becomes a quest for what makes us feel good, and we have a therapy-based society. Um, I simply ran out of time to get the numbers on this stuff, but the uh, the, thera- the therapy statistics in our society have just grown through the roof. And uh, Walt, what was for the podcast? What sermon can they go back to on that? With the what was the title of that one with the anxiety and the depression and the therapy. I don't remember the name of that one. But if you go back a few weeks, Walt threw some numbers out um, that are pretty shocking. Um, That's okay. But what happens is this worldview when life becomes about the therapeutic, um, that can open the door to drugs and perversion. And the goal of life becomes reaching a state of liberation, so freedom from oppression, and trying to transverse all boundaries. Um, If there is no overarching story to life, the postmodern goal then is to be as free as you can be, to not be oppressed by any sort of boundary or any sort of norm, and to go seek as much pleasure as you can. Um, If you've read the news, you know that that's all over the place now, too. And what happens is, um, if the postmodern uh, thinkers actually live out their worldview, it doesn't end well. And Michel Foucault, he lived out the last part of his life I should say the last part I'm sorry of his life in a quest for the real creation of new possibilities of pleasure which people had no idea about previously what he did is he he found his way to San Francisco as he was talking at universities and he was introduced to acid and uh, he was introduced to the nightlife of San Francisco and at your own risk you can um, read about what he experimented with but uh, Let's just say he, he did not believe in boundaries when it came to pleasure, and he contracted AIDS, and he died, I think, at the age of 54. I don't think he made it to 60. But in seeking out pleasure through acid and through frivolity, um, in order to find a real creation of new possibilities, which had not been discovered previously, um, he died at an early age. And think about it. Um, when you strip truth out of society when you say words themselves don't have meaning when you say that there isn't actually a big story to why you're here or how you fit in or how you're going to end up or like what the future might hold Um, there's a lot of uncertainty that can manifest itself when you're told over and over again at the university or in reading these texts that the only thing that you can be sure of is that there's no truth and that there's no overarching story to your existence, then you're left with no certainty at all. You're filled with anxiety. You don't have any hope. And if you go looking for answers, you might find uh, the materialistic or the deterministic outcomes are the only thing that are possible. Um, I remember having a conversation with one of my colleagues at work. Uh, We were arguing whether or not human nature is, by definition, good or bad. Like when you are born, are you born good or are you born bad? And if you've been at Life Journey for a while, you know that you're born in a crummy state when it comes to um, the status of your soul. Far from God. Um, Does Paul even say enemies of God? That's not good, right? Um, Born into the kingdom of darkness. um, Born into death. Uh, His argument was that uh, everybody's good and that society is what kind of crumbs us up a little bit. He does not. (laughs) And that... But, okay, so this is, I actually went to that. I said, okay, as soon as my son started to learn how to speak, he learned how to lie to me when I heard something fall. What happened? Well, it was Belle or it wasn't me or something, right? The dog knocked it over. And then I said to my friend, I said, well, what teaches my two-year-old how to lie? He goes, oh, because of the punishment that he knows you'd give him. So, speaking in terms of the oppression i'm the oppression i'm the problem right which is manifesting the bad behavior in my son and then i said okay well lying's bad and yes i would get him in trouble for that but okay what who what taught him to do the wrong thing that would have incurred punishment in the first place he didn't have an answer to that and then i looked around and i said okay is there something inside of us right now here buddy Or he's a scientist science teacher i said is the only reason that we're having this conversation right now because neurons are firing chemicals are moving around and that the laws of physics are moving my mouth and my tongue and this was going to happen no matter what anyway? Or is there something more to the conversation we're having? It took me about 10 minutes to get him to talk with me and to look out at the sea of kids in the cafeteria to say, like, there's something more in this room than just cells moving around and colliding with each other. Um, If that's the worldview, where's the hope in that? If the conversation I'm having right now isn't even under my control, It's just happening because the laws of physics are making it so that everything up to my life has been this physical, um, calculus sort of driven problem that leads me here to be saying these things. That the words in my head right now are simply because of how I was raised and the kind of food I ate and how many times I got to play outside or whatever. If it's all just physical and material and it's predetermined to go that way because the laws of physics can't be broken, um, where's the hope or where's the certainty on where you're going to go? to which my response would be like, well, how did the laws of physics get there? Who made those? That's a deeper question. Easy answer, but a deeper question. Um, so we need to start thinking about the Christian response to all of this worldview, Whether or not you like it, especially in this county, um, <laughs> you're, you're in the middle of it. And if you disagree, I will have you shadow me for one day at the public high school. Um, I, I backed a freshman into a corner with three questions where he couldn't tell me that Hitler was in the wrong because he said that morality was based on just the relative story. I said, okay, well, I think Hitler was wrong. He thinks he was right. So who was right? Well, we can't both be right. <laughs> so who, who was right? Wait, if there's no quick answer to that, guys, I mean, these kids are 14, 15, 16, and then they go spend, what, 60,000? If you're spending that kind of money, whatever they tell you has got to be true, right? But they hear this, there's got to be a response. And again, in my opinion, parents, you can't be surprised at the worldview of your kid. Um, I, don't, I don't want to get to when my son is 22, 23, and he comes home for Thanksgiving dinner, and I don't recognize him anymore. Um, it starts young, and it starts early, and we got to have a response to all this. So mom's um, you've got a big responsibility. Dad, you've got a big responsibility, and that is to raise your children in the truth. And one of my favorite commentators, he's, he's great at dissecting the, uh, the culture. His name is Andrew Clavin, and he was actually a Jew who uh, got a hold of a New Testament, and he would hide in his, his room as a teenage boy reading the New Testament, trying to hide from his father, because his father would not have been happy about that. He's like, all the things I could have been doing in my room to hide from my father, and I was reading the New Testament, you know? Um... But he has this in response, and I thought this was just really clever. It's talking about Jesus being the word of God. There's something to that. He says that God is the absolute good. There is an ultimate moral good, and that's God. And we can actually know him and know where he is. And so when we are told that we're made in his own image, then it starts to make sense. Um, that there's this good, this, this, there's this idea out there, there's this truth out there that is somehow being manifested here. And he says that the world is spirit and flesh, that we have ideas, we have thoughts. That's how we know that like, life is bigger than just us and ourselves. We have thoughts and we have ideas, but they don't become like tangible until we put them into words, that words and speech are what take ideas and put them out into the world to be tested out. And he says that it makes sense then if there's this absolute good and this absolute idea that if that's going to manifest itself in life that it needs to be put into word and it needs to be put into flesh. And at the perfect time, he said, Jesus was born and was called the word of God. The manifestation of this great good, this great idea, this great moral authority come now to make himself tangible to us. And when you start thinking about the postmodern ideas Of words don't have meanings there's no greater affront to the word of God being born of the flesh um, and come to bring um, the truth of the Lord it's all all against the Christian worldview and so the answer um, the answer that we need to look towards is this authority and authorship of God God is the great author we fit into his story somehow And his son, the very word of God, um, so that we might know this great good, this great God, um, can't be deconstructed, but we have to be aligned with. And so um, I've got some scriptures that I went through um, in response to all of the ideas that I was faced with for the past three weeks or so. I tell you, when you start digging into this stuff and you start reading this stuff, it gets dark. It's it's hard to, you got to walk away every once in a while. Um, and to tell you the honest truth, the only reason I'm interested in this stuff is because of politics. I had to have an answer to what a lot of my friends were saying in the hallways. Um, but the more I got to thinking about it, the more I got to thinking, you know, this is a, this is a worldview and this is a spiritual issue, and that politics are just downstream from culture. And so um, we, we have to have some sort of response or some sort of anchor to cling to as we make our way through the world. And here in John 1, to kind of... To kind of just reference back um, to what I just said is just this great, great answer um, to the postmodern idea that the author is dead and that words don't have any meaning. Let's just read John 1 in the context of of today's discussion and just cling to these words um, as your response to the postmodern worldview. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So there's the beginning of the big story. The word was there. And then later, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this word from God, this this God the author, and then Jesus the Son, the manifestation of this creator, this originator of this salvation story, came into the world full of truth. Um, He came to enlighten every man. And I just, I think, you know, obviously it says he came and, he came unto his own and his own didn't know him and that was talking obviously about the Jews but just think about it. the world doesn't know him well that explains a lot whenever my son hears something in the news I mean we not that never happens but when we're talking my wife and I and he overhears um, us talking about something bad that happened or if some atrocity happened in the world um, or we've told him about why we had to go to World War two as a country um, my son is learning that bad things happen and bad guys do bad things because they don't know God that's, I mean, it kind of is that simple. Right? The world doesn't know them. If they did, they'd have true light, which would enlighten them. And they'd be full of grace and truth. And here's the answer to uncertainty. Um, this is what Jesus himself says to his disciples in John 14. So if you're uncertain, if you're not quite sure how this is all going to play out, if you've found yourself without hope, here's the Christian response. Do not. Do not. Let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Jesus says, but Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. I'm not a way. I'm not a truth. I'm not a life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But from now on, you know him and have seen him. And again, think about, remember at the beginning, the author, the creator of the text. His authority has been stripped. Um, Whatever he intended has been removed in the postmodern thought. But Jesus here, the word of God, from the beginning, says, If you know me, then you know my originator. You know my father. You know the author. If you've seen me, then you've seen him. And if you're still unsure, if there's still uncertainty, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. This is so good. We could camp out here all day, but we won't. we got to get to the Mother's Day brunch, right? For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have been taken refuge, we who have taken refuge, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope, this is the answer to the uncertainty. This is what we have to look forward to. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. When Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek it doesn't get much better than that if you're unsure you can be sure that God swore upon himself that this would be so um, that this hope would be an anchor for our soul and that we could be steadfast in it and here's the last response to the uncertainty that comes through the postmodern thinking this again is in Hebrews and this is our peace this is our rest this is the answer to uncertainty this is what we can cling to so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed Through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Why can we be sure that this Jesus thing is going to work out? Because of those two words. He was without sin, and he's invited us into that. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So those were the scriptures that I found just in opposition to the, to the postmodern worldview. Those are the scriptures that I found that were a great response and a great answer to this hopelessness of no truth and no meaning and no certainty for the future. And here's the journey marker on Mother's Day. I'm sure that every mother woke up wanting to hear about postmodernists. <laughs> Yes, Derrida. Okay. Um, but moms, listen, I, I can't tell you strongly enough. I'm not allowed to say what I want to say in the public school system. But where you're sending your kids um, for eight hours a day, you gotta, you got to send them into a place that might oppose you um, pretty strongly. you got to arm them with truth and arm them with defenses to these thinkings. But here's our journey marker for today. The world might not care how we think. In fact, they attack how we think in most cases. The world might not care how we think, but we need to know how it thinks. And in our responses, the world itself may actually find truth. So I've found that uh, a lot of my greatest moments as a teacher are when a kid comes to me with something which I'd love to just sit down and open scripture with. But in my response, I simply just ask questions, and I get a lot of hms right? Um, when you challenge what they think to be true, when you simply plant little seeds uh, that might differ with their worldview, um, I heard it once said that it's the pebble in the shoe. When you get a pebble in your shoe, you got to fix that right away. That that sucker's annoying, right? But if you can plant little seeds in worldviews to disrupt it a little bit, to simply respond in such a way that would make them question. Um, I read this week that there are two kind of people. There are people that are living to seek out happiness or people living to seek out truth. And if you can identify the person that you're talking to and what they're looking for, um, hopefully your responses will lead them to truth. Well, I tried to race through all that. it that was a lot of information. Um, it's all in the Bible app if you want to go back and look at it. Uh, Walt said that's placed out there. Um, if you want those slides or those quotes or um, any of those Scriptures and responses, they're out there. But uh, I was wondering if the time allows, um, with the time that we've got left, if there were any other scriptures that I might not have pulled that would be perfect responses, or if there are any other encounters that you've seen where postmodernism has reared its head, or if there are any other working definitions of postmodernism. Because according to them, we could define it however we wanted, yes. <laughs> are there any thoughts, or any ideas, or any questions? Yes, ma'am. I have a thought. Okay. I'm not sure that it, it answers your last
2: question, but it's the
0: object of our faith that makes faith faithful, or it's the person
3: of our faith that makes faith faithful. I think faith is often kind of thrown out as whatever, as whatever. Mm-hmm.
1: The anchor of the soul. Yeah, good.
4: I'm just thinking what's prevalent in our society is moral relativism, which comes right out of this. What's good for you is good for you. You know, you don't have to have my goodness. What I think is goodness. And that's the problem in school. I'm sitting here thinking about sitting at Cornell University because they wouldn't do this at all, but (laughs) uh, sitting at Cornell in in that class that they're discussing all this, and you get the test, and it says... um, some some question, and then A, B, C, and D are the answers. And uh, as a good student who learned well and understands the concept, I answer D, fish, because fish is the answer that's right for me. And when he marks it wrong, I go back afterwards and say, well, that may be your truth. Right. But for me, the truth was fish, because your truth <laughs> is in, incongruent with mine. Yeah. And, and at that point, that teacher's got to go, no, I'm the author, and this is yeah. my, uh,
1: well, and Richard Richard Rorty, I don't I don't want to misspeak, but I think it was Richard Rorty, uh, the guy whose picture was up here, he said, um, even at 30,000 feet, I'm a modernist. Where, when you're flying up there, you've got to believe in an absolute truth and, and the readings, yeah. That's
4: the problem. I see with the kids every day. It's to come home from um, school they've been taught this and that and the other, and there's definitely a prevailing thought of you know that relativism whatever's good for you is good for you Mm -hmm. and unfortunately what's good for the majority right now what people think is right is wrong Mm -hmm. and you can make the argument against like gravity you know gravity is a truth it was authored by god he created it when he created the world but oh no i don't believe in gravity gravity is not my truth well let's walk over here off the top of the <laughs> body, see how yep. that truth works for you since yep. it's not so true. Well,
1: there was, there was even a, a story I read about an airport terminal, I think in France or something. A postmodern architect had designed it and didn't like that the engineers needed to put a pillar in place so that he tried to do a workaround so that there wasn't a support and it collapsed and killed several people. And so you know, the, the response was, well, you might like the way postmodern stuff looks, but you don't want a postmodern architect designing something that a postmodern engineer will build. Like you want the modern engineer who's going to build it based on truth.
4: That's really scary to me though because I know my daughter's going to school. I remember even 20 years ago when I went to school, how truth was subverted, how it was um,
5: presented in this way. I know it's even worse today. I'm surprised that Right. Such as, like, you know, dress more conservative movie. Yeah. So that people aren't distracted. I'm like, surprised he wasn't kicked
1: out 15 right. years ago. Yep. So the way things are going, Sorry for the well, Cornell bash. I, <laughs> kicked, I don't have anything against I Cornell. I got
5: kicked out of class once for, for an opening discussion with a professor where he was saying something that I really didn't agree with. It was something along those lines. And he said, you can leave class. And I was
1: like, okay. Yeah. Whew.
5: This was, you know, was you know. Yeah.
1: Wow. Jonas?
3: Well, I was just thinking about you know, your comment does somebody have a scripture, you know, and, and then I was just reflecting on how that as we understand Satan came to Jesus with scripture. Yeah. And he didn't say that what he said wasn't scripture. He just said it was also said. And I was just thinking about the idea of of all this disproving. Truth or truths or facts for things that we see as self. And and I was just thinking about the idea of I think they refer a lot to truths. Mm. And if if we argue with somebody to debunk things that The same level as somebody who argues about truths plural, then we may be doing nothing more than arguing between good and evil, which were both of the forbidden fruit. They say, this is true, and we say, it's not true. And, and we may have many truths. I see the truth as that mystery which was hidden, the very idea that so many people seek either to find settled truths or many truths or to debunk feel the need to debunk it, it may be closer to the same basket as we would like to think. If we get in the same level as them I, I see the, the truth as I understand it as being singular. <laughs> uh, sometimes we talk about redemption. Part of it is in my younger life I heard that we are to repent from sins, our sins. And and what are, what am I supposed to repent of? Well, what are your issues? What are your sins? Repent of those. I see sin as also being singular. You've yeah. been stung. And so that it is we have one problem and there is one truth. And just like you brought out in a very beautifully in the end, it is Jesus. And the very idea of that they say there is no truth. But think about it, these people are actually speaking for truth. They're at the brink of, to finally say, they say, welcome to the club. There's a mystery that was here, and that
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, to, to, I was thinking very similarly to what you just said, that if we, if we simply say, all right, this postmodern thought tends to manifest itself in what we would say immorality, well, the Christian response tends to be, let us, uh, encourage morality, and that sounds good, but it was the knowledge of immorality and morality, the knowledge of good and evil, that resulted in the death of Adam and Eve. So the solution for immorality isn't just, hey, let's pump up some morality. That's hanging off a different branch, but from the same tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the truth isn't morality. The truth is a person, like you're saying, James. It's Jesus. Now, will Jesus lead us in, quote, moral ways? Of course he will. But he is the truth. He is the life. He is uh, the reality, which is what the Greek truth means, the reality, aletheia. And so I totally – hear what you're saying, Jones, because it's not just, hey, let's just replace these, not these, this, this thinking with some concrete moral thinking. It is, let us realize that there is the truth, Jesus, who is the solution for all of those things, and... Especially like we were talking about the therapy situation where people are spending so much time, energy, and effort trying to just, uh, in, in my counseling, I talk about, you know, a lot of times you go to the doctor because you have a rash and they'll just try to put an ointment on it and maybe it helps for a little bit, but eventually you go to a different doctor who actually does some blood work, you know, whatever, and they realize that you have an allergy because they've looked deeper, they Find there's something really deeper going on. Allergic to gluten. so You cut that out. And all of a sudden your skin clears up. Well, what I think we need to see is there's something much deeper at staying. And that is, are we dead? Or are we alive? Are we in Adam? Or are we in Christ? Because if we're in Adam, we will just keep on trying to find, we're seeking this truth. Keep trying all sorts of different things. And if we're not careful... We're going to just seek that moral high ground, but we're doing just basically the same thing, trying to feel okay with ourselves because we didn't do the immoral thing, we did the moral thing. That's just spinning our wheels in a religious sense. We have to come, the true piece is living with this reality that Christ himself has joined himself to me. As your title, a new creation in a postmodern world. And all of your definitions of postmodern examples, like I just I just hung out in Genesis 3 the whole time. That you were talking. He's like, he, Satan created confusion to, to Eve. He changed the meaning of what God said, you know, all this sort of stuff. So this is as old as,
5: yeah, pretty much. I think it's interesting that you yeah. went all the way back to the original uh, sin story because that is like a very – of the flesh like uh, corrupting what was like a perfect situation and then trying to, you know, Satan rationalizing it. Mm. So being the first example. And I also think it's interesting that postmodern people have now pointed to that story and say, oh, well, that's a story of oppression. (laughs) Like That's a story where Eve was oppressed because she made a decision to go and get dinner and she was punished for it. She was blamed. So, the postmodernists are trying to even say, well, that example in the Bible of what we're doing is technically
2: oppression as well. So, don't, mm-hmm. don't look at that. That's not a, It would be real easy to hear this conversation, you know, and to feel uncast
1: My kids, for some reason in question time, they asked me, um, they, somehow they had asked me about death, like if I was afraid of it. And like without dropping a beat, I was like, I'm good. Whenever it needs to happen, I'm, I'm fine. Like I've made my reservations. And they just all looked at me and were like, "What? you're not scared of dying? I was like, no. Like what's the problem? <laughs> like, they just looked at me like I was like out of my mind. Um, but yeah, when it's, when you've, yeah. When you've been plunged into that, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Here
5: you go.
6: the book of judges, most every chapter starts off the people again did what was right in their own eyes. And then they came around and then uh,
5: yeah. you
1: know oh man I should have put them <laughs> right in their own eyes. <laughs> yeah yeah. God yeah. is continually
4: recovenanting. How sad will that argument be in judgment when you stand there and you say, well this is my
7: truth.
1: Then you hold can, up. Tell me how yeah.
7: Well, it, it, it's kind of yeah. interesting because, like, as Christians, we believe, like you all were saying earlier, God is the truth <laughs> and the life, and whatever you had up there, um, the what, the way, yeah. Um, but like, if you don't believe in God, then you don't believe in the truth. So there is no truth. I mean, to me, that's if you don't believe in God, that's the logical conclusion of life in general. Like, I, if I weren't a Christian, I don't know how I would even want to live in this world. But it's amazing that God has given us what he has. And, I mean, that's that just, like, makes me so happy to wake up every morning. My brother um, being yeah. very much in that postmodern movement, and I, I, wish you would be able to see what we see.
6: Um, I don't know. So like one last thought that for me that it seems we don't even really have to like we don't even have to use the, the term deconstruct. We don't even have to like try try to deconstruct their the, the, these philosophies because they. They do that themselves. Um, like the statement, there are absolutely no absolutes. Is that not an absolute? <laughs> so it just falls apart, it crumbles on its own. And so we don't have to be the, the you know, philosophy police. We rest in the one who is truth and when those who are seeking after, again, you know saying, this truth realize, man, it just keeps on coming up empty and empty and empty and empty, then there is that opportunity for the sharing of, of the, the truth. And, um, so yeah, it's. I don't feel like I have to be like a, with like a sledgehammer trying to tear these things apart. We need to be educated. We didn't know what's going on, but I don't feel like we have to be the uh, you know, TNT and, and a hand trying to like blow it up cause it, it like crumbles on itself. Um, I just to want it to crumble with my kids, you know? Um, so that, that's where the home comes in, like you're saying. Mm. Awesome. <laughs> um, it seems
7: like it, it shouldn't be too hard if anybody comes to you and saying like, you know, that there's, there's no absolute truth. I mean, just ask them then how they feel about climate change deniers you know, mm-hmm. or Holocaust deniers or gender identity, you know, whatever their thing is that they're, you know, like yeah. when it's, it should become pretty clear. Once you bring up something that really matters to someone, yeah, that, yeah there is real. Well, except that, really except for that one, except for that one. Well, yeah, but yeah. if, you, but that's if, a if you're great somebody who's saying no, there's, you know, yeah. male or female or everything, right. you know what I mean? Like they, you know, they get, that's a great point. They defend their absolute truth pretty quickly. It's something yeah. that matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great job, Craig.
6: That's yeah.
7: awesome. Yeah. So you
1: <laughs> do I need what? Do you do parties? Depends on the price, I guess. Well, should we close in prayer? All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Um, and this, this whole week, as I was studying, I was thankful to be a part of your meta narrative, uh, to be a part of the big story of the redemption of man. Um, Lord, we thank you that you had an answer. Uh, to our fallen state, um, that uh, anything that we might be tempted with cannot surpass um, your experience, cannot surpass your power, um, that you have an answer for it. And Lord, we pray that as we walk throughout uh, this week, as we enter back into our jobs, uh, as we enter back into um, the world around us, that uh, we would look for opportunities to be. Um, truth to those around us, that we would look for opportunities um, to simply be uh, a word from the author, um, that we would point to point um, to you our truth. And Lord, we thank you for mothers. Uh, We realize the tough job that moms have. um, And Lord, we pray that you would give them uh, just peace this week, Uh, help them to simply enjoy their families, help them to seek out learning opportunities with their kids, and uh, Lord, we just bless our moms today and pray that you would um, just give them a wonderful afternoon uh, and your peace and your rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, amen.
0: Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.